What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and just last month, the newest chapter of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was released in theaters, Thor Love and Thunder. And it's crazy to think that it's been over 11 years since the first Thor movie was in theaters. Now, admittedly, I didn't actually go see it in the theater back then because to me, there just wasn't any appeal to watching an impossibly handsome blonde man swing a hammer around, but I had no idea what I was missing out on. Because before seeing it, all I knew about Norse mythology was that Thor had a hammer and Odin had a raven. And even that knowledge, I shamefully have to credit to Ron Burgundy. So when I finally did check out Thor, I was amazed. Rainbow bridges, cities of gold, ice giants getting their heads smashed in, Natalie Portman. It was everything I wanted and more. But the character who stuck out the most to me and who I so desperately wanted to get more screen time was Heimdall the lone gatekeeper to Asgard who could hear and see anywhere in the Nine Realms. He controlled the Bifrost, had a badass suit of armor, and was played by Idris Elba. Without a doubt, he was one of my favorite characters in the MCU, so now that I'm much better versed in the world of Norse myth, I thought it'd be cool to compare and contrast both versions of him. Only, I'm sad to say that his role in the real mythos reflects his role in the Thor movie. As in, it just left me wanting more. But now it's time for us to jump into it, mere mortals. Sacrifice those five-star and follow buttons if you haven't already. And brace yourself for the messed-up origins of Heimdall. Chapter 1. Guardian of the Gods so I'm happy to report that when it comes to Heimdall's abilities and responsibilities, the MCU got a lot right, but they left out a ton of specifics. So I think the best place for me to start this breakdown would be from the very top. Heimdall, or Heimdaller as it's actually pronounced, is a god who's chiefly responsible for standing guard against potential threats like frost giants invading Asgard, as well as keeping watch for the onset of Ragnarok. I know, it's a pretty important job, so you'll be happy to hear that he is well equipped for it. According to the Gilfa Ginning, the first story in the Prozetta, one of our two major resources for Norse myth, he possesses great wisdom, foreknowledge, and his other senses are as acute as can be. Heimdall needs less sleep than even a bird so he can stand watch for as long and as often as he needs to. He can see a hundred miles around him, whether it's night or daytime, and has hearing so sensitive that he can pick up the sound of grass growing as well as wool on the backs of sheep. Like many of the other Norse gods, he also has a noble steed, a horse named Goldtopper, or Goldtop which he's said to have ridden to Baldur's funeral. We don't know the exact significance of the horse's name, but it could mean that it was gold in color, or maybe it had a saddle made of gold. Whichever one it was, I'm sure it looked majestic as hell alongside his gold tee. Oh, that's right. Didn't I mention your boy has a grill? Now, as you would imagine, with a job as paramount and specialized as Heimdall's, he needs a sweet office to do his business from, preferably one in the corner with a view. This is where him and Bjorg, or Heaven's Hills, comes in. It's located on the edge of heaven where the burning rainbow bridge known as the Bifrost meets the sky. And while we don't know too much about it, I can confirm that Heimdall has a massive storage of the world's finest mead there. Not confirming from personal experience, unfortunately, because Odin says as much in a poem called Grimnismal. When it comes to Heimdall's parentage, he's referred to as the son of nine mothers, all of whom were sisters. And if that confuses you, you're not alone. Even the Norse experts don't know how to interpret that. Does it mean Heimdall's like a phoenix and has died and been reborn multiple times to different mothers? Did they each give birth to a different piece and then assemble him like a Galador action figure? Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. All we do know 
is that he was born at the edge of the earth, that each of his mothers was Jotun, and that one of them, Yarnsaxa, was also the mother of Thor's son Magni. So there's a hint of a connection there. Now what also makes this origin story of Heimdall so confusing is that we can't say for sure whether he's an Aesir god or Vanir god. Not only does his lineage give us nothing to work with, but depending on what poem you look at, he could be called either or both. For example, in Thrymskvitha, a poem where Thor's hammer is stolen by a frost giant and Heimdall suggests dressing Thor up as Freya so he can fake marry the giant and steal it back, there's a line that says Heimdall is the whitest of the Aesir and knows the future like other Vanir. So you can't help but wonder which one he is. Now as for that whitest of the Aesir bit, my initial reaction was, damn, I wonder how Idris Elba would feel about that. But it turns out that back then, the word white wasn't really used to describe skin color. It could mean attractive or handsome, it could mean old, it was sometimes used to describe someone with blonde hair. The problem is any and all of these interpretations could be applicable to Heimdall. Again, we're just never gonna know what's meant by it. But we've already covered just about all the basics of the Guardian of the Gods, so let's move on to the myths he's featured in, including his ultimate destiny at Ragnarok. Chapter two, myths. So it's at this point that I've gotta break your heart, Solo fam, because there actually aren't many myths that focus on Heimdall. There was at one point, actually there was an entire poem dedicated to him that experts believe would have answered some of our most puzzling questions about the god. Like how was he born from nine mothers? And why is a sword called Heimdall's head? The poem in question was named Heimdalla Galdri, though I probably butchered that. And the only reason we're aware of its existence at all is because two lines of it are quoted in chapter 25 of the Gilfaginning. In that section, the enthroned figure of High, who's actually Odin in disguise, tells the also disguised King Gilfi about Heimdall and comments that Heimdall says the following lines in the poem. Offspring of nine mothers am I, of nine sisters am I the son. Isn't that amazing? The only two lines of the poem that survive and they say the exact same thing. Gotta love it. I mean, sure, it would have been nice if he was like, offspring of nine mothers am I, as well as the son of Odin, or whoever would have been his dad, but nah. Let's just say the same thing twice instead. Everyone will appreciate hearing it a second time. Anyway, what really sucks about not having the full text is that it may have contained a myth that explained the origins of Heimdall and Loki's rivalry, which is another detail the Marvel movie pretty much nails. These two did not like each other and it was no secret. Just like how the films show, I'm sure part of the rivalry spawns from Loki constantly causing trouble for the Aesir and putting Asgard at risk, but there's one specific event I would have loved to read about and that's the time they fought each other in the form of seals. You heard that right, in another poem called Who's there's a subtle reference to this event. And from what I gathered, it sounds like Loki stole Freya's necklace, known as Brisingamen, and Heimdall was responsible for getting it back. We don't know exactly how the conflict ended, but we learned in the second part of the prose Edda, called the Skald Skipparmal, that another way to refer to Heimdall is the recoverer of Freya's necklace, so it's safe to assume he won the contest. And for those curious, his other epithets include Son of Nine Mothers, Guardian of the Gods, the White Ass, and Loki's Enemy. However, there is another name he goes by, and we get it from the only surviving myth that focuses exclusively on him called Rig's Thula. These names are killing me, man. Chapter 3 Rig's Thula. 
In this story, Heimdall is referred to as Rig or Rieger, and it's here that he's given another epithet, the father of social classes, which is why in the first stanza of Volushpa, the seer speaking with Odin refers to human beings as the children of Heimdall. So one day, Heimdall, disguised in the form of Rig, which is how I'm going to refer to him for the rest of this story, was going through a little walk through Midgard when he came upon a house with an open door and a fire burning. Inside was a couple named I and Edda, whose names translate to great-grandfather and great-grandmother, and he, quote, knew how to give them good counsel, so he sat between them. They devoured a hearty dinner together, and that night when they went to bed, Rig slept between them, and this continued for three days until he left to continue his journey. Nine months after this, Edda had a son, they named him Thrail, which translates to slave, and he spent his life doing hard manual labor. Then one day, he met a woman named Thyr, who, like Thrail, was scarred and hunched over from her laborious life, and they had 19 children. The son's names translated to lumpy, barn cleaner, noisy, horsefly, sleeper, stinker, midget, fat boy, slow, gray hair, hunchback, and dangle leg. Meanwhile, the daughter's names translated to shorty, fatty, fat calf, shriek, slave girl, gossip, skinny hips, and bird legs. Not exactly terms of endearment. The legend says that all future generations of slaves descended from this one family and the first social class was made, but Rig wasn't done yet. He went on to do the exact same thing with two more couples, there's that rule of three again, and each one was a little more prosperous than the last. The middle class couple had a son named Carl, which means free man, he married a woman named In-Law, and they also had children of their own, which all farmers are said to be descended from. The upper-class couple is where it gets really interesting, though. Once again, Rig gets the wife pregnant, and she has a son named Jarl, which translates to Lord. Only this time, instead of being forced to do manual labor, he's taught how to hold a shield, use a bow, throw a spear, fight with a sword, etc., and he becomes a great warrior. So great, in fact, that Rig returns, gives Lord his own name, claims him as his son, and tells him to claim lands and conquer the nearby villages, which Lord Rig goes on to do. And that's actually the extent of Rig slash Heimdall's role in this story. So I'll go ahead and break down the ending, which actually cuts off just as abruptly as it would have if I didn't include it. Basically, Lord becomes the ruler of many different lands, gains numerous supporters in the process, and eventually meets a beautiful girl named Eagle, whom he marries and has children with. All of their sons go on to become great warriors, but it was the youngest, named King, who surpasses his father. In addition to learning how to fight and hunt, he also learns runes and gains the abilities to calm storms, dull blades, speak to birds, and put people to sleep. I'm personally still working on those first three, but the last one I've definitely got down. In the final scene of this poem, King is riding through the forest hunting birds when a crow calls out to him and says, You would win more if you rode to battle against men. You should seek the halls of Dan and Danthier as they are wealthier than you. The end. And what I tell ya. Pretty unsatisfying, right? When you look at the part that actually involves Heimdall, though, it does give a fascinating glimpse at the socio-cultural norms of the Norse people and what daily life entailed for the three social classes. Those in the slave class, some of whom were paid and some not, were forced to do manual labor for the benefit of others on a daily basis. Though it should be mentioned that just because they were given some pretty harsh names that described them as ugly and deformed, that doesn't mean they all were. There may have been more of that than in the other classes, but it stems from them not being able to afford or make nice clothing, 
clean themselves up or treat their medical conditions as well. The Freeman class was a bit harder to describe because there was so much variety within it, but it does seem like they were fairly prosperous and self-sufficient. Many freedmen had their own land and could provide for their families, but they couldn't ball out of control like the aristocrats, who, as you saw in the story, had the most privileged lives. Instead of spending their days toiling in the fields or serving those richer than them, they could pass the time by practicing sword fighting, learning how to ride a horse, and swimming competitively. It was a nice setup they had going, until those filthy Christians got involved. Relax, Karen, I was only joking. Chapter 4 Ragnarok. Now the final story that Heimdall plays a role in is none other than Ragnarok. Soon after the death of Baldur at the hands of Loki, Fimblewinter is triggered, which means Great Winter. This was an event that preceded Ragnarok and is described as three seasons of winter in a row with no other seasons to break it up. Basically, my personal hell. Then when the icy nightmare is over, your boy Heimdall will blow into his Gialar horn to inform everyone in the Nine Realms that Ragnarok is upon us. And the undead armies of hell will march alongside Loki to fight against the Aesir, Vanir, and the dead Norse in Valhalla. I'll be doing a video completely dedicated to Ragnarok in the future, but when it comes to Heimdall specifically, he and Loki's rivalry will come to a fateful end when they fight and kill each other. What, was that too anticlimactic? Sorry, that's exactly how it's written though. I already expressed my disappointment over the lack of details in my video about Loki, but I'm still not over it. Regardless, it's still interesting to compare to his role in Thor Ragnarok, where he and Loki end up fighting alongside each other against the forces of hell. And this is after Loki had usurped the throne in disguise of Odin and banished Heimdall because he knew he could see through the disguise. Talk about being a good sport. I would also love to compare Heimdall with his portrayal in video games like God of War and Assassin's Creed, but sadly, he isn't shown in either of them. However, a pretty cool detail in Assassin's Creed is that after he dies at Ragnarok, he's reincarnated and given the name Rig Rydarsson, a subtle reference to his name in the myth, Rig's Thula. Gotta say, I'm a little disappointed that he doesn't make a full-on appearance, but you've got to appreciate them, including that Easter egg that almost no one playing the game is actually going to get. On that note, though, we've covered just about everything we know about Heimdall, Guardian of the Gods. I'm sorry there wasn't more, but blame the sands of time and those filthy Christians. Regardless, I want to thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast, where we're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And remember, if you're craving more Messed Up Origins, you can also check out my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes. The music isn't as good and there aren't as many sound effects, but there are visual aids and custom-made artwork, so hopefully that balances out the presentation. Until next time, Solo fans. My name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.